Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Will y'all pray with me? Father God, we um, we are grateful. We are grateful that when you restored our fortunes, we were like those in a dream. You are good right now to us every day. You are immensely good. Uh, this life, as the man said, is the closest thing to hell that your people will ever experience. But one day we will see you face to face. The kingdom will be consummated. Heaven will have come to earth. And we will see you with our eyes, eyes that have been raised from the dead. And we will be made like you in the seeing. And Lord Jesus, we long for that day. We will say then, we will say, we are like men and women who are waking from a pleasant dream into a reality that's even better. Hasten the day, Lord. And in the meantime, we pray, Father, that you would find us faithful. That you would find us faithful in this world, doing the things that you left us here to do. So I pray, Father, for these next few moments as we think about your word and as we reason together. um, We pray, Lord, that those needing encouragement would find it in your word that those needing correction would find it in your word, that those needing hope would find it in your word, Um, those needing clarity, that we would find it in your word. We ask that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that this would be um, a day that would lead to great joy in the lives of many because God spoke to his people and his people heard and believed and responded in faith and obedience. So would you come and would you draw near to us now in accordance with your word, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7, and let me tell you what we're going to do. The title of today's sermon is Protections Aplenty. So as I looked at um, Nehemiah 7 and Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah 8, by the way, is one of my favorite sections of scripture, it, it's, you, would, you would be hard-pressed to find any more glorious text than Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 7 has a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. And so this, uh, this week at Elder Prayer, I was like, hey, I, I kind of feel like maybe I should fly over, do a quick flyover of 7, but there's some really important stuff in 7, and then just fly over it and get to chapter 8. And, um, but the problem is, if I do that, we won't sit in 7 enough. And so, we're saving Nehemiah 8 for, uh, for next week, Lord willing. This week, what I want to do is, I'm not going to teach so much Nehemiah 7, but I'm going to teach you about Nehemiah 7, if that makes any difference to you. What I see here is I see <clears throat> something that Nehemiah is doing. It's very wise. As he's, uh, as he's leading forth a reformation in Israel, he is seeing to the protection of the work that he's doing. So protections of plenty. There's uh, half a dozen things that Nehemiah does very intentionally to protect God's people and to protect what he's doing. And so what I want to do is, uh, is tell you these things, the, the things that he's doing to protect. Now, let me say this uh, at the outset. Okay, John the Baptist said of Jesus that he would come and lay his axe to the root of the tree, right? Meaning 
in their day, there were some trees that had grown up and they were bearing rotten fruit. And like a wise gardener, Jesus wasn't going to come and knock off all of the rotten fruit and then hope that a better crop would rise. What is he going to do? He's going to take his axe and he's going to go to the root and he's going to chop it down and he's going to plant new trees. Now, sometimes Jesus chops down trees that we have made tree houses in. Amen? Have you ever known that experience to, to feel like, man, Jesus is chopping down those things that I've put a lot of stock in and a lot of hope in. Now, so please understand, any time that God in his word lays, as it were, the axe to the root of your tree, he's not doing it because he hates you. Why is he doing it? Because he loves you. He loves you. So there are some protections that we're going to talk about that I think God wants us to sit in and to hear from him in and it might feel like I'm chopping down a tree that you built a treehouse in. So please understand just ahead of time that these things are said because of love, not because of um, hate or anger. So <clears throat> so protections aplenty. The first thing that Nehemiah does to protect God's people, and we've seen this, but I want to think with you about it. Uh, about what it means and how it would apply to us is he builds the wall. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built, they finished the wall. It's done now. It's all closed in. And, and he goes on to say, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. So he's, so he's built the wall. Uh, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, Forrest was here. And when I got done, he was like, okay, so Pastor Will, let me get this straight. He was uh, tongue-in-cheek. He said, so, so we need to build walls, and we need to walk around with swords and shovels. That's pretty much the, the long and short of you know, the application of your sermon. I'm like, well, yes and no, right? We don't need to build physical walls like Nehemiah did. And so we need to ask, what did Nehemiah's walls mean? So I would submit to you that Nehemiah's walls were the intentional building up of a counterculture. Okay? His walls meant that God's people are going to plan to build something that's counter-cultural, that's not like the world. It's different. When Nehemiah finishes these walls, there's going to be an inside and there's going to be an outside. There's going to be an us and there's going to be a them. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, I was wondering uh, about our missionaries and how they would uh, approach these things. And it dawned on me that they do these things fantastically so let me illustrate right the reeses are in pay they're in at what once was an unreached people group <clears throat> they moved into pay they live among the pay people but do you think that justin moved into pay to learn from the pay people how to love his wife as christ loved the church does he take cues from the men of the culture to say this is what husbands are for Answer that question. No, he doesn't. Rather, he takes his cues from God's word, and in the midst of a people group, he gives a counter-reformation, a, a counter-culture, so that they can look and say, there's something different about the way he treats his wife. Same thing with their kids. Do you think Justin and Lauren go out to the pay people and say, hey, how do you teach your kids? Because we kind of like to learn from you. No. What do they do? They teach their kids the way God's word says to teach their kids. And now the pay people have a model that's heterodox. It's different than what they've seen. And so they're asking, what, what is that? So in pay, our missionaries, 
have moved into, intentionally, they plan to move into enemy territory, like uh, rebel territory, Satan's ground, and they have lived out marriage, family, relationships within the, the mission, uh, their, their mission brothers and sisters there, the Joneses and Candace, the way that they've conducted their relationships with one another, they're not taking cues from pay. Rather, they have planned to establish a counterculture so that the people of pay have a model to see and can be drawn out of the current thing that they're in. So it's a counterculture that's intentional, okay? Um, one more story from a missionary, and you might hate me for telling this story. It may or may not fit on Sunday morning, but it's massively important and a great illustration of this point. Uh, there was a, a missionary who gave the entirety of the prime of his life when he should have been in America working, earning, making the big bucks. He moved over to an unreached people group. And because of his work, by God's grace, uh, there is a multiplying church in what was an unreached uh, people group. And I don't know if this question came to him while there was a church, like after the church had been born in that tribe, or if it was before, but the men of the tribe, he knew going in that they're going to be watching me at, at every step, watching what I do, watching how I interact, all of these things. And he said one time, one day, <clears throat> the, several of the men of the tribe came up to him and they said, we have a question for you. He's like, okay, what's your question? And he said, uh, these guys said, our question is, <clears throat> how do you get your wife to want to have sex with you? How do you do that? And he was like, what, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we've been watching you. And he's like, you've been what? Yeah, we've just come and, you know, chipped a hole in your wall and we've been watching you and your wife. And what, what is astounding to us is you don't have to force your wife. How do you do that? Now, you can, you know, throw up in your mouth a little bit. At the, at the shock of like, wow, we have been being spied upon in our most intimate uh, family endeavor. But you ought to rejoice in that as well. Because there, right there, they saw the grace of God and had no idea how it could be attained. Tell us how to do this. Tell us, how do you, how do you get something so beautiful? And it was all because, listen to me, they didn't move into a culture and adopt from the culture. They moved into the culture and stood where Christ tells them to stand. They built intentional counterculture so that the world can look on and see and imitate and grow to know who Jesus is. <clears throat> now, part of the reason our church culture, excuse me, part of the reason our secular culture in, in, uh, in our country Part of the reason it's so wicked is that the church has largely tried to build the same culture as the outside world. You hear it in so many churches trying to be seeker-friendly or whatever, that they're, they're taking so many cues from the culture that they look very much like the culture. And so somebody comes in and says, your marriages are just like ours. Your families are just like ours. There's nothing different about you. You just kind of listen to a guy on Sunday morning for 30 minutes and it's somewhat boring, right? Like we don't understand where you're coming from. The average American family uh, is the same size as the average secular family. So Christians are having about the same, uh, same size families. We do politics the same way. We do commerce the same way. We do church the way that, uh, that the culture finds palatable. And so we're consistently laying aside 
any sort of doctrines or any sort of practices that the culture finds repugnant, the church just lays them aside for the sake of being culturally appropriate. And this is, according to God's word, the worst thing that we can possibly do. We sing the same style songs. We have the same feel um, as like a, a secular concert, okay? Jesus told us to go disciple the nations, but in our day, without walls of distinctly Christian counterculture, we have instead been discipled by the nation, okay? Um, it's, a, it's a statistic that is heartbreaking. Uh, I was reading this week in a book called um, Durable Trades, a great read, you should, you should pick it up. But he said, he was talking about all these different uh, problems that we're experiencing in our culture, and there's economic problems and all, all these different things. But one of, the, one of the sections there was that we're losing our faith. As a culture, we're losing our faith. And so he was, uh, he was giving all these different statistics, and he mentioned one that kind of touches, uh, touches our, um, yeah, touches us uniquely. So the, the Southern Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, has some sort of committee. They have a bunch of committees, but this one is over dynamics of family and, and um, statistics and health and those kind of things. And they do all sorts of polls within the, uh, the Southern Baptist community. And they said uh, that not that they think this is the case, but this is what they have found. This is what the research states. The research states that 88% of Southern Baptist kids raised in Southern Baptist homes with Southern Baptist parents who are active in the church, okay? So we're talking about not fringe people, but people active in the church, mom, dad, Southern Baptists, active in their local Southern Baptist church, bringing their kids along with them that are active members of the church. 88% of them will punt the faith within two years of graduating high school. Now, that is heartbreaking. So we need to be asking, why, why is that happening? And just big picture, I think one of the reasons that's happening is instead of the church purposefully building a counterculture within the church that's based more upon God's word than it is on the culture, instead we've adopted sort of life from the culture and our kids have been raised in that, and when they get out of the home, they just go for, uh, yeah, they go for the culture. Vodibachum said it this way, if you send your kids to be raised by the Philistines, don't act surprised when they come back as Philistines, right? So, now, what's really cool, if you look at, if you look at our church, we have much to be grateful for. Do we not? Southern Baptist Church, at least in name, Right when you look at uh, at the the kids that have grown up in our church, there's there's much reason to be uh, to be grateful to God that it hasn't been eighty eight percent eighty eight percent. Russ, correct me if I'm wrong. That's almost nine out of ten. Is that the stat? So if you think about uh, just the the kids, just the ones that you know have have grown up in our church that have graduated and moved on. Um, God be praised, our statistics are much better. It's a much better picture than this because God has been gracious to us. But um, it's, it, it's, a, it's something that we need to reckon with that Nehemiah, in order, again, in order to protect his people, he built an intentional counterculture, which I'm defining as the wall. This, a, a line of demarcation. We do it differently in here. 
You do what you want out there. But in here, we honor the Lordship of Christ. So, walls. Secondly, secondly, doors and gatekeepers. This is fantastic. So, he says, when the wall had been built and, uh, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers. So, if the wall means for us an intentional counterculture, what would a door and a gatekeeper mean? It would be intentional commerce with those on the outside world. We have planned to open our doors at certain times and to go out and be around them in the world or to have them come in so they can be around us. So, yes, we have to build intentional counterculture. We have to build a Christ-centered culture within the body of Christ. And we also have to intentionally plan to be seen by others, to be in a place where, if you'll forgive me, somebody might chip a hole in our wall and spy on us, right? We, it has to be seen, okay? Jesus said it this way to his father, John 17. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. So Jesus could have said, Lord, when I ascend, let me just take all my people with me, Father. That's not what he said. I'm leaving them here, and I'm not asking, Father, that you would take them out of the world. I'm asking that you would protect them from the evil one. Paul said it this way. There was a, uh, there was a, um, a man in Corinth who had his father's wife. Again, tons of um, you know, uh, upchuck moments this morning in, in the text. Uh, he, had his, uh, he had his father's wife, and he wrote to the church in Corinth, Do not associate with such a one. Don't associate with the sexually deviant like that. And so they kicked this guy uh, out of the church. They, they put him under church discipline. Um, and then they started to distance themselves from the Corinthians who are not believers, who are also sexually deviant, and there were plenty of them. And Paul wrote to them a second time, and he said, You've misunderstood me. I said, Don't associate with a man who bears the name of brother who's sexually deviant who's not walking in uh you know he, he can be he can be sinning and struggling and, and trying his best well, i'm talking about high-handed sin somebody who claims to be a christian and says but i'm going to do what i'm going to do don't associate with them but he said in no way did i tell you not to associate with the sexually immoral of the world and he says or else because you would have had to leave the world and you can't do that he talks about right we um it's, it's interesting when you think about Christians in, uh, in our current culture, one of the things that we love to do is we love to boycott, right? Uh, those um, claiming to represent us in, in politics and those kind of things love to say, hey, this company gave money to this endeavor and so boycott them. Paul says something very particular about that in the church of Corinth. He says, look, you can't buy uh, meat in Corinth that hasn't been sacrificed to an idol. It can't be done. Every single piece of carne had been sacrificed to an idol. And he says, you can't, you can't get away from it. And so instead of jumping in like an American Christian and saying, be a vegetarian, boycott them, doesn't matter, be content with the veggies, he says, there's no such thing as a God, the, the God they're sacrificing to. Eat the food without asking questions. But I'm gonna force you to think a little bit. There's some, there's some nuance here. If somebody serves you something, if you go over to your neighbor's house and they serve you something, eat it without asking questions. Don't say, where did this come from? Is this fair trade? Is this, you know, Republican meat? No. 
He says, just eat it without asking questions. If they say, here, try this brisket. It was sacrificed to Zeus this morning. Then refrain for, for their sake, right? So there's a nuance. And, and Christians, listen to me. Most of the New Testament was written for people trying to live under the lordship of Christ in the world. In the world. Not outside the world, but in it. So we have to build intentional Christian counterculture but we also need to make sure that Christian counterculture is being seen by those on the outside. That's our job, okay? So, walls and counterculture is a, uh, you could call it a monastic gesture, a gesture towards monasticism. That there's wickedness and paganism out there and Christians know better and so we want to be in a place of our own with a culture of our own and we want to build it up and we want it to flourish and we want to protect it. That's a gesture towards monasticism. But doors and gates and gatekeepers are a gesture in the exact opposite direction. A, a gesture against monasticism. Something that keeps us from being just living a life in the Christian bubble. Okay, All because we need to be in the world, but can you finish it? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That's faithful Christianity. Is how do we live faithfully under the lordship of christ in the world that he told us to disciple okay so intentional counterculture and intentional go-between so they can come see us we can go see them by the way there's gatekeepers that are going to say hey buddy it's not the right time you're not going out to them right now this is not the right season of life this is not what we're going to do it's it's nighttime whatever they have wise men at the gate saying hey now it's time now it's not time okay a shocking protection that he puts here. Uh, he says walls, he says doors, and he says uh, doors and gatekeepers, and then he says singers. Now, that is, to borrow a, a musical term, that's a dissonant note in here, isn't it? Walls we get, doors we get, there's enemies on the outside, we need walls, we need doors, we need gatekeepers. Singers? Why? Why are singers so important? Well, Part of the protection program, Nehemiah's protection program for his church is singers, or for his, for his people, for Israel here, is singers. And the, it's because the songs we sing are extremely important. Some, some of us, if you're, if you're reading, if you're paying attention, you might be jarred by that. Wall I get, doors I don't, I, I get, but, but why singers? Listen, if that strikes you as odd that Nehemiah would put singing in the realm of walls and doors and, and physical protection, it's because you are no Scottish Protestant. You are no French Huguenot. It's because you didn't grow up under Calvin in Geneva or in Puritan America. All of those Protestant movements, when God dumped his blessing out in the rediscovery of the gospel of grace under Luther in, in, uh, in Germany and Zwingli, and Calvin and Knox and Bootser, under all of these men who stood up and went ad fontes back to the sources, they, they uh, resurrected the preaching of God's word and reformation reformed God's people to the standard of God's word. When they did this, music followed. They, they used music and viewed music as one of the most important things that they did together. So let me see if I can illustrate this. Um, 
Martin Luther was one of the most prolific authors that's ever existed in history. Could you quote anything that he said in a sermon or anything that he said in a book? And I was thinking about this. I, I uh, intentionally didn't go look up because I know a lot of Martin Luther quotes, but I was, I was searching my brain to see, is there any, any one quote that's lodged that he said? And I could only think of one that he said in a book or a sermon. He said, uh, to progress in the Christian life is to begin again. Meaning, just as you receive Christ Jesus by grace through faith, so walk in him. This is what it means to mature in Christ is to go back to the gospel again and again and again. That's the only thing off the top of my head that I could think of uh, as a quotation from Martin Luther. But guess what? Try not to sing this with me. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Music changes everything. And reformers knew that. Nehemiah knew that. King David knew that. That's why he wrote the Psalms. So music is one of the most important things when you think about the, um, the leading of a people. This week, and I'm so glad she's not here because um, I, um, I can speak a little more freely, but she'll probably watch this. Uh, this week, we watched the Super Bowl. Any, any takers on the Super Bowl? So <clears throat> we're watching the Super Bowl, and more important than the game in our home is the commercials and the halftime show because that's where you see the culture on display. That's where you see what kind of world we're living in, right? The commercials and the halftime show. And so the halftime show, they're playing in L.A., and so obviously they have... Dr. Dre and Death Row Records and the gangster rappers that, that came on from the, you know, from the 90s when, uh, when they sang of cop killing and all of these things and drug, you know, thugging and all of these things, right? Um, <clears throat> now, I won't tell you which Martin it was, but somebody in the Martin family sang every single word that was played at the halftime show. The kids are watching going, what is this? I can't understand what they're saying. And the ladies are dancing really weird. Like, what's going on, right? But there was one in the Martin clan. I think we had people in our house. What's that? That's exactly what we were saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we would be, yeah, we would be seeing the same thing there, right? Um, yeah, and, and she, she sang every song. And she sang every song because when she was a kid, that's what she listened to. Now, I can remember, this is God's honest truth. I can remember being a kid in junior high and high school. When my buddies were listening to the cop killing gangster rap and drugs and women and all these things, and I can remember feeling a sense of a, a real sense that God was more pleased with the fact that I listened to country music instead of gangster rap, right? Because God doesn't have a problem with, that's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's the night that they hung an innocent man because there was adultery and murder. That God doesn't really care about the thunder rolling deep in her heart as she kills her husband because he's cheating on her. God doesn't care about those things. He just cares about cop killing. Now listen, I, I can look back on, on my life and trace like major events, great times, terrible times. One of the, one of the chief, um, uh, most difficult times in my life, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, when my parents got a divorce, we set sail, buddy. Like, it was no longer, as C.S. Lewis put it, when his mom died, 
It was no longer life on dry ground. We were at sea. And there were times where the sun was up and the waves were calm. And there were times of 100-foot swells in the North Atlantic. And the only type of music I had to, to shepherd my soul through there was Brooks and Dunn and George Strait. And somebody should be horsewhipped for that. Somebody should be horsewhipped for that. Because I grew up in a Christian home. But this is what we listened to. This was the, the vast majority of what we sang. Music is, is very like food, right? Is there anything sinning against God about, is there anything evil about stopping and getting uh, chicken nuggets? Please say no. No. You can eat the Rocky Road. You can, you know, get funnel cake at the, at the fair. You ought to do those things. That He means for you to, uh, to do those things. Otherwise, he would not have given you taste buds. But is there a problem with a kid that's only given funnel cake, and now when he gets bouffe bourguignon, he turns his nose up at it and says, I don't like this. This is rubbish. This is no good. Now all of a sudden, if your junk food is eclipsing your desire for real sustenance, we got a huge, huge problem. Music by design gets down into your soul and it shapes you and it does it for the better or for the worse. Which is why musical, the musical life of our church is what it is. We could easily give you cotton candy, KCBI, Chris Tomlin junk songs that will leave your soul self-centered, anemic, and vulnerable, which is much more important. Or we could do the better, harder, and more glorious soul work of teaching you how to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that the word of Christ may dwell in you richly. Okay? The Reformation was a reformation of the church and of the culture doctrinally. The Reformation was the reforming of the church and the culture politically. And the Reformation of the church and of the culture was a reformation of music as well. And some of the greatest music in history, in the history of the world, came downstream to us as a result of the Protestant Reformation. And that's not hyperbole. I'm talking about the greatest musical um, investments that men have ever come up with. The highest heights of musical achievement have come downstream as a result of the Protestant Reformation. As a Protestant Reformation. And we, as Protestants, have forgotten our heritage. So, let me say this. Miss um, Kelsey, if I had a glass... I would raise it to you for what you've done for our church um, and for our family in this area in the way that you've uh, used your gifts of, of music to shepherd us. Um, maybe the highest compliment I could say is Nehemiah would be super proud of you. He would be super proud of you. Um, guys, we, <clears throat> we've been singing Psalms of the Month for 74 months. That's more than six years of glory. Right? So that's one thing. Um, second, second gift, second gift is uh, Miss Kelsey uh, has started a, um, a psalm sing once a month where we're going to get together. She challenged us to memorize a psalm. And if you haven't come, there's no condemnation. 
Um, it's kind of like as a dad when Gracie makes something really good and the kids are like, I don't know, what is this? And I always say, and I always mean, I really kind of hope you don't like it because more for me, you know, that, that mentality. So it's not anything that there will be condemnation ever if you don't, uh, if you don't come or can't come, but you're missing something really, really good uh, as, we, as we sing and as we memorize um, psalms. Um, brothers uh, who know it with me, ladies, you know when to come in. Behold, bless the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. Bless you from Zion. Yep. So it is a normal thing now in the Martin home to see. She doesn't do it all the time. By the way, Lydia is not here uh, interrupting me as I preach. But it's not, it's not a rare occasion for us to start singing the psalms that we're memorizing at church and to see Lydia raise her little arms to the heavens. To see Judah singing the psalms. This is a gift that cannot be measured. Uh, and oh, by the way. Uh, putting God's word uh, to song so that we can memorize it um, is a gift that cannot be uh, that cannot be overstated. So, Kelsey, thank you for um, thank you for for being part of our um, part of our protection. I'm so glad, so glad that um, instead of hearing my kids walk around um, singing things like um, that woman that I had wrapped around my finger just to come unwound. Instead, they sing, kill the dragon, get the girl. It's glorious. It's a glorious gift. It's a glorious gift. And sadly, there are so many in the church that cannot appreciate it. I'm not talking about in our church. I'm just talking about in the church in America because we've been fed this cultural music where um, we just sound, it sounds just like the culture and it, and it does no good for us. Can I give you a, um, an assignment? There is on YouTube something called the evolution of worship, and it's this. Uh, just so you get the right video, there's one guy, and he divides himself up in four screens, and he sings four different parts, and he goes throughout the history of the church singing all the the um, what would be called like the top forty of the church of church music all throughout history. Listen to me, it way 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 back, he sings. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, uh, my treasure thou art. And then as he progresses through the history, he sings, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you cannot find one glorious and one absolutely repugnant, we got a problem. We have a problem, okay? 
To protect the people of God, Nehemiah builds walls that represent counterculturalism, intentional counterculturalism. He puts doors in those walls so that there can be uh, there can be commerce between God's people and not God's people, so that not God's people can become God's people. He puts gatekeepers in those doors. Now's a good time. Now's not a good time to to liaison with the world. And he puts singers in place. And he puts Levites when the Levites had been appointed. Men that make sacrifice in this context, they were men that sacrificed so that people could see a picture of how God forgives sin by the blood of a substitute, right? But in this context, probably, probably more important, maybe not, very important though as well as we'll see next week, that he puts, Nehemiah puts men in place who will teach the Bible to the people of God. That they will, uh, there will be singers and there will be Levites who can open the book and say, Thus saith the Lord, believe and obey. This is part of the protection that, uh, that Nehemiah puts in place that God wants among his people. Leadership that fears God. So he's got walls, doors, gatekeepers, singers, Levites. Then he says in verse 2, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. That's authority over Jerusalem because he was more faithful and God-fearing. Uh, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And so Nehemiah point, uh, appoints leadership. That, that leadership is not just wise. It's not just seasoned. It doesn't have a good resume. What it, why did these guys get to lead? They were faithful and they were God-fearing. They did life in the presence of God, knowing that he would hold them to account for the words that they say, the things that they do. They feared the Lord. And so he puts them in leadership. There's also membership. And God be praised, uh, perhaps. We're not going to read um, 5 through 65. But it's a really important thing that Nehemiah says, look, I found the registry. Uh, so he says, we'll just read verse 5. Then my God... Put it into my heart. So this is God's idea, not Nehemiah's. God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the peoples to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found in it written. And then he lists uh, a bunch of names that came with Zerubbabel and, uh, in, the, in the beginning. And then they list out all the people who are there with Nehemiah. This is the protection of membership. Okay, the protection of membership. Um, Elders are commanded in the church to shepherd the flock, and part of shepherding is knowing who you're responsible for. It's a, to this day, I'll still meet people who will say, hey, nice to meet you. I'm a member of Moldy Baptist Church. Well, if you're a member of Moldy Baptist Church, I've been here for, you know, going on 12 years, some, some, somewhere in there, ballpark. I've missed a month or two of Sundays if you, if you pack them all together, and I've never met you. If you're a member, I'm a monkey. Like, that's not the way membership in the body of Christ works. Uh, like, so, so leadership and membership is like, uh, is like husband and wife in, in terms of, it's a two-way street, right? Um, th this week, in the, um, as, we, as we prayed as elders, one of the things that, uh, that came up again and again was the, the idea that, man, we have to stand at some point we will stand before the chief shepherd and we will give an account for how we have shepherded you 
right? That's terrifying. That is terrifying. And so we want to be, we want to be good shepherds. We want to shepherd you well. We want to be faithful there. Want as bad to be shepherded. Membership, leadership, both. They're two-way streets. Elders want to shepherd you well because we love you and because we will give an account to the chief shepherd. So there's membership. Okay, walls, doors, gatekeepers, singers, Levites, authority, membership, and then last of all, money. Look in verse 66. The whole assembly together, actually verse uh, 70. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. So three giving groups here. Verse 70, the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 derricks of gold. By my mathematical reckoning, check for yourself, it's between 250 and 300 pounds of gold that this governor gave. It's kind of a lot of coin. 50 basins, 30 priestly garments, 50 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave, so second group, heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold. That's 5,000 pounds of gold. So we're like 7,500 pounds of just gold, not including silver and the other things. Uh, and then third in verse 72, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold. So another 20, another 5,000 pounds of gold. I don't do math, but that's around 12. No, it's around, it's a little over 10,000 pounds of gold. There's, there's money, there's coin, and there's other things. And so the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers, some of the people, uh, the temple servants in all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. There is money uh, within, within the people. Um, a Christian countercultural counterculture has to have dollars behind it. Okay? Now, let me say this. Uh, <laughs> remember Dale Holly one time. I, I said something about him being a farmer. And he goes, Preacher, there's two things in life that I'm not. And both of them are a farmer. Which I thought was a great way to say that. Well, there's two things in life that I'm not, and both of them are a fundraiser, okay? I, uh, so please understand, I'm not trying to uh, raise any funds. Our bills are paid, all is well. God be praised, like we, we're, we're provided for as a church. But should the Lord lay on anyone's heart to intentionally build up some wall of Christ-centered counterculture it will fall to the rest of us to participate in the work, and that might look like being generous towards the work. Um, there have been uh, just massive, massive works throughout our country where God lays on his people's heart some aspect of a countercultural work and that the people of God rally to it, they give to it, and therefore it gets built up. Now, let me close this way. In, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, uh, he uses the word guard several times. Verse 3, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing, guard. Let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The idea is Nehemiah is stressing on his people Vigilance. You need to be on guard. Okay, that word to guard is the same word that uh, that God commands Adam when he's alone in the garden. He put man in the garden and gave it to him to work it and to 
guard it, shamar, to guard it. It's the same word. So brothers and sisters, we have real enemies. And if we do not take up those protections that God has given us in his word, we cannot hope to stand against them. But if we trust the Lord, if we fear his name, and if we endeavor by his strength to build and fight, then there is every reason biblically and historically to expect that we will see his goodness to us in ways that we cannot imagine. And so, will you build with me? Let me prepare us for communion and we'll, um, I'll pray for us. This table is a table of rest. It's a table of protection for your soul against the condemnation of the enemy. It is a place where we can come to enjoy the fact that Jesus has seen you and all of your faults and loved you beyond your wildest imagination. Jesus said, greater love has no man than he who would lay down his life for his friends. And in doing so, Jesus makes a comparative statement, right? That there's love, there's love that's great, and there's love that's greater still. But there is no realm of greater love that can be imagined than Jesus laying down his life for you and for me. That makes his love for you greatest. His love for you can get no deeper, it can get no wider, it can get no sweeter, and it can get no more satisfying because his love for you and for me is the perfection of what we mean by the word love. So this table is a table that reminds us of him and his great love for us. You are loved by Christ, so come to the table. Accept the fact that you have been accepted and come. Come and welcome to Jesus. Lord, would you, would you come and minister to us? Um, Lord, for those of us who uh, our, own, um, our own sin, our own failures uh, tend to cloud out our our sight. Um, God, would you help us to, to eat and drink by faith this morning and not by feelings? We need you to help us get the eyes of our hearts focused onto Christ, that we might remember him, that we might remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed for the express purpose of glorifying your name by reconciling your enemies to yourself and calling them sons and daughters. So this table is for the imperfect. And therefore, we are glad and we come. Holy Spirit, would you draw near to us? Would you fill our hearts with the overwhelming assurance that you know who we are and that you love us even still? That you have forgiven us of our sin, that you have kept your word to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us. Would you do this work, Lord? We ask it in your name.